1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can think of has its own history, like pixies, plumbing and horsehair.
2: Oh, I love the idea of doing something on horsehair. I'm not quite sure what we do, but we could also do picks, sticks and tricks, wicks, slicks and fix. So it's the it's the history of fixing things it's about handy men and women and DIY and um I and I say this as somebody who isn't particularly handy but I do have a friend who is particularly gifted with his hands uh and has made uh, in recent years a pizza oven a smoker he smoked me sausages the other day raised beds a chicken coop uh whereas I have (laughs) barely a practical bone in my
1: body are you handy Sam? I've seen you make a quill, James. You've made a quill in front, of my ver- in front of my very eye. Is that the only thing you can do?
2: No, no, I, I, I self-deprecate this uh, beautifully there. Um, I, a talented all-round knot. Uh, um, however, <laughs> with, this is to be a complete aside. We will be following the links, as always, in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of dreams is in fact all about demons, temptation, the rise and fall of empires. It's about Islam, recipes, spoons. Oh, and of course, it's about cheese and childhood. Or that the history of temper tantrums, This was one of my recent favourites, is in fact all about Henry II and the murder of Thomas Beckett. That was one of our recent homeschooling episodes.
1: It was. It was very good fun. I want to do more on on temper and tantrums generally. Uh, I think we should do that. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, the man who is not sitting anywhere near me, because we're still at the other side of town, uh, he is a memorial to the study of history itself. He's a living memorial. He is (laughs) Professor Extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's the brilliant Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam.
2: Thank you. That's very
1: charming. Charming. I was thinking of, of, uh, of, of, of
2: you uh, and and thinking about um, how I describe the man not sitting opposite me who's in his shed across town. Well, let's just say, Sam, that if you were a statue, you would be the Admiral Lord Nelson atop his column. And he's a big, oh. a big hero of yours. Uh, it's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis.
1: Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Um, if you haven't worked it out yet, James and I are going to get to grips with the history of statues. We've both been inspired to do this, obviously, by what's been going on in the news. Uh, it's so much to do with history, the past, with historians' views. And we thought that the one thing that we could do was to bring you some different perspectives, at the very least, on the history of statues, on what they mean, um, why they 're important, um, just an unexpected way of thinking about um, these why these 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 permanent lifelike people who live around our cities and our towns, James. They're there. They're inhabiting it with us. And I think it's time we spent a bit of time thinking about who they are, why they were there and what they could possibly say about history in an unexpected way. We guarantee uh, that if you listen to this podcast, you will not think about statues the same way ever again. I think we can promise that.
2: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the reason that we're doing this, everyone's talking about statues at the moment. So we sort of Sort of, we don't really want to jump on that bandwagon, um, but we thought that it was actually quite timely for us to uh, intervene here. And and you know, statues and the interpretation and people's views about statues have a very long history. What we're currently seeing at the moment is a a, a debate uh, about the the sort of political and ideological meaning of statues on our streets at the time when. You know we're sort of reeling from um, the, the the death of, of George Floyd uh, in the United States, and you know and the implications that this has had. We've seen recently in Bristol a 17th century slave trader's statue, one Edward Colston, uh, being sort of thrown into the river there because of his his sort of past. Um, we and, and also this is being played out this kind of debate around all sorts of statues. Robert Milligan's statue, a slave trader, was removed from the West India Quay in London uh, by landowners, the Canal and River Trust. Um, And there are all sorts of campaigns on at the moment, A 1,000 protesters in Oxford outside of Oriel College campaigning for the removal of the statue of Cecil Rhodes, that 19th century businessman and politician who was in South Africa and supported apartheid-type uh, measures. We can also see it in Francis Drake's statue uh, in my own town of, of Plymouth the University, where I where I am. There are debates uh, around that. Robert Clive as well, um, uh, and in our own town of of Exeter, Redvers Buller's uh, statue uh, has become you know something of a, a sort of controversial statue because of the role that he played as a military leader in the the second War. and I think there are all sorts of other things all, all sorts of other statues around the country uh, that people are debating and I think this debate around statues is a very very fraught one, and it shows how history or heritage, in other words, how we understand the past in the present so how we understand history today is so deeply contested and statues were set up to memorialize people who were viewed one way in the past often as heroes or as philanthropists and are now viewed in a very different light and it's not just that it's it's heritage sites it doesn't have to be statues it could be churches or shrines have different meanings to different people and are contested and I think what we're seeing is the way in which history has a real relevance in a series of culture wars or history wars. And at present, the Black Lives Matter movement is targeting statues of historic figures who they believe had a racist past connected to empire or slavery. And I think it's important to have a look at the different views on this. And there are several sort of really dominant critical approaches. And these are epitomized by the views of two historians. The first one is David Olasuga. and he very clearly calls for the removal of all of these statues and he wrote a very eloquent article in the guardian recently that where he basically you know he he really sort of um encapsulated everything uh, about the sort of removal of the statue of a seventeenth-century slave trader, and and he ends up by put put literally on a pedestal in the very heart of the city, this slave trader. Um, tonight Edward Colston sleeps with the fishes. So that that's basically about the erasure of statues. Now there's a slightly different view coming from the same direction. That basically we need to be. Um, wary of this of this kind of history in our public place, and this is epitomised by somebody called Sir Jeff Palmer, who's Scotland's first black professor. And he has a slightly different approach. He's somebody who's you know been taking part in in Black Lives Matter protests. Um, he argues against the demolition of slave traders' statues, though, um, and the reason that he does it is that he argues that their destruction meant atrocities of the past would be forgotten. And and he basically says that what we're doing is, in concentrating on the statues, you're actually ignoring what is a deeper problem. And he's quoted here, Slave history has to be done properly in the curriculum, and it has to be got examinable so that it changes attitudes. That's what we need. It has got to be like maths and physics and all our other mainstream subjects otherwise only then long held racist views would be entrenched and they need to be understood and overcome and so some of the some of the proposals are for putting uh, plaques alongside these statues that basically explain you know precisely what the negative impacts of these people were during their their lifetime now of course the problem is that the very same statues that those people are protesting against are for others, you know, something that are deeply important and have an emotional resonance for them in other ways. Um, If you have a look at what's happening in, what happened in London at the weekend uh, and what happened in, what is happening in the United States around the Confederate statues, you've got far-right groups you know, saying that they are protecting their heritage and their culture. So effectively what you're doing is you're seeing a clash of ideologies here. But I want to end this little sort of segment here with a with a quote from my friend uh, Jerome de Groot, who wrote a, an article a few years ago um, in uh, History Today, I think it was, about statues, Confederate statues in the United States and the importance that they had for the sort of the the alt-right uh, over there but what what really struck me about this article is what he is his concluding paragraph. History happens in public, and the memory enacted in parks, squares, and streets is important for the way a polity defines itself. How and what a nation chooses to remember the strategies for commemoration and the implications for acts of memory. These are all deeply important and immediate issues for citizens of those states to engage with. What type of memory is appropriate or not and what kind of person is celebrated set a tone and an example for the civic life of the country. And I think if you're looking for a justification of the value of history today, it lies exactly in that. History is never more relevant. There we are. How's that, Sam, for a little little starter for
1: ten? It was brilliant. You gave me so much to think about. I was slightly, um, I was stuck down a cul-de-sac of thought of my own. <laughs> um, but I, I, no, I really, really enjoy that, and um, I, I'm actually quite inspired by this this theme in the news. Uh, it's it, one thing that it certainly is is evidence of huge numbers of people becoming engaged with the past based on them understanding the past in new ways, which is all uh, uh, because of the hard work of generations of historians. Much more work needs to be done, particularly in certain areas, such as race relations. But um, people tearing down statues is actually, uh, you know, one way of looking at it is evidence of people changing the way they think about the past and then their behaviour is changing because of that, which I think is really interesting and important. Um, What I wanted to do was to just talk about Statues as a historical source, beyond the value of them being put up by previous generations, because so much of the discussion which has come about has said, "Oh, well, these statues were were set up in an age where they were uh, either when slavery was legal, or whether people um, had different ways of um, different ways of thinking, a different culture in which they've been brought up." But of course, statues as a material object are a very, very valuable piece of evidence. Um, And I totally get why Edward Colston was put into the bottom of the the dock where his slave ships used to come and dock. Um, There was a bit of poetry in that. But uh, there is a certain aspect of uh, these statues which we need to bear in mind. And the one statue I think which really makes this point is one which was recently... Uh, scanned in Amsterdam, it was uh, put through a CT scanner, it was a, uh, a statue, this is the Drents Museum, wonderful Drents Museum, it was a statue of a Buddhist monk, um, which was put through a CT scanner, and inside it they found the body of a Buddhist monk, so here we had a statue of a person which was actually containing the mummified body of a real person and uh it's just a powerful point to make that these objects themselves are valuable historical objects they're historical pieces of evidence this particularly has come out um has, has happened uh, is a practice called um a a buddhist practice Uh, Around about a 1000 AD of making living Buddhas, when the monks did this, they went into a a process of self-mummification. They would spend as much as a decade following a special diet, gradually starving their bodies to enhance the chances of preservation. They were essentially preparing their bodies to become in the perfect condition for mummification, so they didn't eat any food made from rice, wheat, soybeans, but instead they ate nuts, berries, tree bark, pine needles, all in slowly diminishing quantities. What that does is reduce the body fat and moisture crucial because those are the two things which can cause a corpse to decay. So if you can prepare your body not to have so much fat and so much moisture, it's less likely to decay. They also ate herbs, um, other types of nuts and sesame seeds. And those were chosen because they inhibit bacterial growth. Again, something else which um, is more likely to ensure that the the, the, the corpse survives. They also drank a poisonous tree sap. Um, And what that does is creates a sort of toxicity which repels insects um, and it almost acts as its own type of embalming fluid. So it's the most extreme example here. But what you've got is what you think on the outside is a statue, but in fact, it's a tomb. It's something different. And James and I, we've actually come across a variety of statues which have interesting historical relevance on our travels. Do you remember at St Mary's Church in Limington in South Somerset, James? We went to this beautiful grade one listed building. We did our Histories of the Unexpected show there and they have a wonderful um, a statue which was engraving on a tomb. It's an effigy of Sir Richard Givney. He was, um, we're talking about a 14th century knight here and the value of that tomb is in the armour which it depicts. So there are very few sources of evidence for clothing for knights in this period, but this is to be uh, considered to be one of the most detailed and one of the most beautiful. So you get a sense of what a 14th century knight is wearing, whether it's looking at the details of his bassinet, his helmet, He's um, clearly got a male coif beneath it, uh, a strap under his chin. You can see the mounts which support the bassinet. And also you can see the details of the protection on his arms and on his legs. Basically, it's a wonderful depiction of the clothing that a knight would wear from the 14th century. And there are all sorts of other wonderful examples. One of the ones I've come across, which I love the most, is of an admiral in um, uh, it's in the Louvre in Paris, and this is a chap called Philippe de Chabot. He's an admiral of France in 1543, so he's the the, the French admiral under Francis I. Um, and what's important about him is that he is holding uh, something called a boatswain's call. Um, so this is a, a it's a type of whistle. There's a description here from from the 18th century. It's a a sort of whistle or pipe of silver or brass used by the boatswain and his mates to summon the sailors to their duty and direct them in the different employments of the ship. It is sounded to various strains, adapted to the different exercises as hoisting, heaving, lowering, veering away, belaying, letting go a tackle, etc. And the piping of it is as attentively observed by sailors as the beat of the drum to march, retreat, rally, charge is obeyed by soldiers." Um, and this is used essentially uh, because this high pitch of this whistle can be heard very clearly above the sea, and it's actually believed to date back to the Greek na- navy, where it was customary for the bosun to set time for the rowers on the galleys with a flute, and what it then transfers into is it becomes a, a badge of insignia, it becomes a mark of office, and the key thing with this tomb in the Louvre is that we don't have any examples from the 16th century. But here, cast in stone is a beautifully um, created example of an admiral lying there with the mark of office in his hand. So there, you've got the uh, statue acting as a a historical source beyond the fact that it is simply a statue. It's more complex. Um, And actually, one of the wonderful things about this is If I had a bit of time, James, I'd like to do some research into Philippe de Chabot, about whom I know next to nothing. (laughs) However, listen to this. He was born in 1495, died in 1543. He was made, uh, this is the description from the Louvre website, he was made Admiral de France on March the 23rd, 1526, on his being released from captivity. But it doesn't tell you where he's captured. I found out that he, and then the king, Francis I, had actually been um, captured after the Battle of Pavia, uh, 1525. This is part of the wars between France and the Habsburgs. Um, Absolutely fascinating person. He is basically made... Admiral on the on the basis of a promise made to him by Francis I when they were both kings, um, and Francis, uh, he he succeeds his cousin. Uh, he was never knew he was going to be king. Basically, he succeeds his cousin and father in law Louis the Thirteenth, who dies without a son. So then Francis makes his mate uh, from childhood into an admiral. He's then imprisoned with the king um and then he's later imprisoned again later in life because of his mother's intrigues and this is um louise uh, louise of savoy who's a fascinating person and she's up to her up to her elbows with um, negotiating with Cardinal Wolsey, with the Suleiman the Magnificent, um, a fundamental, uh, a key figure in the Franco-Ottoman alliance of the 16th century. Um, So there you go. I really want to find out so much more about Admiral Chabot. And I've been inspired to do so by the existence of his statue in the Louvre and that beautiful carving of the bosun's whistle.
2: Excellent. Excellent. And you should. You should spend your entire summer trying to do that remotely online <laughs> and then re- report back.
1: <laughs> so I, will, I, I, will.
2: I want to take us in a, a slightly different direction because um, I think one of the things that we're seeing now is with this sort of the the sort of toppling of statues, this actually has a long history. Uh, and we wrote about this in a chapter on recycling in our book on the unexpected history of the Romans. Um, It was a brilliant chapter. I really enjoyed writing it. Um, And basically what you see there is the way in which in ancient Rome, um, this culture of recycling was everywhere throughout the the empire. And people commonly reused, renovated and repurposed all sorts of materials from buildings and arches, glass and jewellery to portrait sculpture and importantly, for what we're go- I'm going on to say, for statues and secondhand markets throughout um, the city of Rome sold everything from clothing to antiques and villas in the countryside were equipped with workshops dedicated to mending and recycling materials. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, you know, when we think about recycling today, you know, the Romans were there well before us. And so with this widespread culture of recycling and reuse, sculpture and architecture were altered and amended and added to in all sorts of ways, connected with those who ruled and who had once ruled. And it's not simply about scavenging and and destruction Um, as part of economic stagnation and imperial decline, but it's actually something that's explained by the consideration of politics, culture, religion, and also aesthetic choices. And basically, at the root of it, this recycling and repurposing of the material remains of the past, was actually deeply connected to a Roman interest in public image, which I think is absolutely fascinating and throughout the ancient world public statuary and architecture were visible symbols as they are today celebrating wealthy benefactors who paid for and commissioned them I mean that's why you see all of these statues around the place the statue in Bristol that we were talking about it's there because it's celebrating a wealthy benefactor you know who's done so much for Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A city and is ultimately paid for his, you know, to be in that place as a way of sort of, you know, amending for the sins of the past, I suppose. Um, but but in, in ancient Rome... Emperors, consuls, senators, wealthy patricians all had statues and civic buildings of various forms chiselled in their names to honour them. And just as statues and buildings projected the magnificence of rulers, especially the emperors, so too the repurposing or redesigning effectively erased the memories of those who were once associated with them, and later generations put up their own memory in place. And this is a practice known to later generations as "damnatio memoriae." It's not a term that's used at the time, but it basically means the destruction and confiscation of property, the banning of personal names, the erasure of names in inscriptions. All of which was aimed at deliberately obliterating the memory of an individual. From the material landscape of the Roman Empire. So somebody who falls from power, falls out of favour, basically just gets written out, well, not written out, smashed and chiselled out of history. For example, there is a preserved in Penn Museum in Philadelphia, there is a marble block about five feet high, erected in 95 CE with a commemorative inscription which formed part of a monument dedicated to the Emperor Domitian, who ruled between 81 and 96 CE by the town of Puzzoli, uh, which is basically located near Naples in Italy. And after his assassination, the Senate ordered the defacement of all monuments erected to honour his name. And this is a really, really good material example of this order being undertaken and presumably what happened was a workman armed with a mallet and a chisel had to travel to and climb up the monument carefully chiseling away each letter of the inscription until it was no longer visible and some of the letters are completely obliterated chipped away while others are partially visible suggesting that the workman's hand was probably getting tired as he hammered away. (laughs) Now on one side of the monument was an inscription to the emperor which has been chiselled away to erase his memory. Um, and on the other side, is a, on, the, on the opposite side of the slab, is actually, are actually signs of the repurposing of this. And there's an image of a Roman soldier and a prefect of the Praetorian Guard, the emperor's own bodyguard, which were inscribed into the stone. And this was not merely covering up the identity of a past emperor, but also the clear promotion of a new imperial regime. Rather than wasting perfectly good stone, it was recycled to honor the Emperor Trajan, who ruled between 98 and 117 CE. And it was now being used for a completely new public image. And this is, you can see this in in all sorts of ways throughout the Roman period where Statues and sculptures have had their face cut off, altered features, repurposed in somebody else's image. And it also happens in paintings too. You know, a painting might be um, modified to incorporate new features, codifying the power of new ruling elites. Now, very few paintings survive from antiquity, but we hear from Pliny, who relates the fate of a painting produced by the great artist, Apelles, who flourished in around fourth century BCE, whose portrait of Alexander the Great capturing a personification of war was on public view. It was basically symbolic of Alexander's celebrated military victories and, and the conquering of war. And Pliny reports that after many decades on display, the Emperor Claudius commissioned Roman artists to paint over Alexander's face and to set there instead features of Augustus, the founder of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And in so doing, Claudius was drawing a connection between his, Alexandra's military achievements and the image of Augustus's own Pax Romana. So there we can see it in, not only in statues, but also in paintings. And it is something that has, you know, that has Classical and ancient origins. Well, so there we are, Sam. Ancient Rome for you.
1: Yeah, I love it when the Romans have done something that we haven't <laughs> yeah. done before. It does. It doesn't make you feel very unoriginal. Uh, I, I wanted know. to talk a bit about um, destroying uh, statues, which are evidence of free thought and liberty. Mm. It's the hmm. opposite of of what's going on now, and that's got its own history. Which uh, which I think as as important as what's going on at the moment. Um, Just briefly talk about the Statue of Liberty itself. So um, the the framework of it is built... but It it was made in France. uh, And it was... To understand what's going on here with the relationship between the Americans and France, you have to go back to... Uh, the War of American Independence, and understand that the French provided their navy to help the Americans, who didn't have a significant ocean-going navy to fight, uh, fight the English. And the, um, the the inclusion of the French in the war was one of the key things that helped tip the balance of power and help the Americans eventually achieve their independence. So there's a long, interesting history of the French being interested in this idea of liberty, uh, particularly in relation to what's happening in America. So um, the, the the Statue of Liberty is finally completed in the 1880s. It's made out of copper, but the metal framework is made by Gustave Eiffel, who made the Eiffel Tower. So you've got to imagine a mini uh, human-looking Eiffel Tower inside the Statue of Liberty. Now, that was nearly destroyed during the First World War. It was nearly destroyed by accident, but nonetheless, it came under attack. And that was part of what's known as the Black Tom explosion. And that was an act of sabotage by German agents um, in America during the First World War. And it was one of several different examples of Um, of sabotage by Germans and what they did was uh, the Black Tom is an island in New York harbour next to Liberty Island where the Statue of Liberty is and it was then a major munitions depot for the northeastern United States and there's an enormous explosion on the night of July the 30th created a a detonation wave that travelled 24,000 feet per second. There are fragments from the explosion. Um, Some landed in the Statue of Liberty itself, which is how it became damaged. But there are others that land um, over a mile away. And it's smashing windows all over the place. They hear the explosion as far away as Philadelphia. Um, and, And windows are broken in lower Manhattan, some in fact in Times Square itself. So the statue's damage cost $100,000 in 1916 to actually repair it, with particular damage to the skirt and the torch. So it's just one of several German sabotage campaigns against the US. And because of the scale of the explosion, it actually was one of the things that tipped America into joining the First World War. It was an attack essentially on American soil. It was too close to the Statue of Liberty. It damaged so, And it had immense propaganda uh, propaganda impact. There are clear parallels here with the attack on Pearl Harbor in the Second World War. So there you've got an example of of a a statue representing liberty being damaged Um, and there's another wonderful one which is actually linked to the Statue of Liberty itself and this is the goddess of democracy and that is a statue which was deliberately created to look like the Statue of Liberty and it was built in Tiananmen Square in 1989. So it was inspired by um, these French democratic traditions, which goes back to the French Revolution and also linked to the American Revolution as well. So it was their own, um, the the Chinese students, their own Statue of Liberty. Remember what they're doing? This is in the backdrop of major social changes in China uh, after the death of Mao um, there's a great deal of concern about the future, what's happening with the political elite. Uh, particularly students are incredibly worried. They, they, they are arguing for more accountability. They want more visible due process, freedom of the press, freedom of speech. All of these things which they could see were um, very clearly accessible in the West. And they were concerned that it was all going to be shut down or continue to be shut down in communist China. Um, at the height of these demonstrations there are almost a million people in Tiananmen Square and there's that very famous picture of the students and the tanks when the, the Chinese declare martial law. Uh, there's a massacre. Lots of the demonstrators are murdered but you very rarely see any images of this extraordinary statue. And they actually they made it out of foam and papier-mâché over a, a metal structure. And what they wanted to do is make it so big that they, they couldn't it, it would basically dissuade the government to dismantle it or it would become such a difficult task that it would take them a great deal of time, They'd therefore be able to get um, photographs of it. They could actually have them um, f- visibly dismantling a huge... Uh, symbol of the freedom. But nonetheless, the Chinese government, after they declared martial law, they did destroy and take down this statue. And this statue was there to to, to be a symbol of liberty. So two wonderful examples there of of people doing the opposite to what's happening at the moment.
2: Very good. Very good. I want to take us to the Reformation. Statues are all about the Reformation and iconoclasm. An iconoclasm is basically the destruction of icons and images or monuments. And it's something that we can see, you know, again, having a very long history. We can see it in in ancient Rome. And one of the things I didn't talk in my little section about ancient Rome is the way in which pagan statues, you know, get get replaced um, with sort of Christian uh, statues or sort of erased and replaced as Christian statues uh, as as Rome converts slowly to Christianity. However where we see this happening uh, is in the 16th century in the European reformations Uh, and it's connected to the idea that in the Bible in the Ten Commandments in the Second Commandment um, that basically you shouldn't um, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under earth. thy shall not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. So this is the second commandment and it is against idolatry. So it's what they they reject. Now early Protestant reformers are split in their attitudes to statues. If you take somebody like Martin Luther he taught the importance of images as tools for instruction and aids to devotion, uh, stating, if it is not a sin, but good to have the image of Christ in my heart, why should it be a sin to have it in my eyes? And so Lutheran churches were quite ornate on, on the inside with a prominent crucifix. Um, and in contrast to this, um, other reformers leaders such as Calvin uh, and and Spingley encouraged the removal of religious images by by basically stressing this this second commandment. And what you see throughout Europe is an attack in reformed Protestant cities and territories on religious images. And there are significant iconoclastic riots taking place throughout Europe, Zurich in 1523, Copenhagen in 1530, Munster in 1534, Geneva in 1535, Augsburg in 1537, Baal in 1529, in Scotland in 1559, in Rouen in 1560, La Rochelle in 1562. Um, In fact, in 1566, in the Netherlands, In the Low Countries, there's something called the Storm, which literally means the statue storm, uh, where they tore down Catholic statues and images all across the Low Countries, which is actually one of the leading factors in the outbreak of their War of Independence from Spain uh, two years later in 1568. Uh, In France, the Protestant Huguenots attacked Catholic images as a way of purifying their own communities and claiming the space for themselves. Um, However, this often is a very sort of um, destructive affair, it's often in in rioting, uh, and it's about new, it's about jurisdictions of different uh, religious groups, so Protestants versus Catholics. And it involves defacing statues and paintings being slashed and painting over, but actually, these people come into conflict with each other. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of, of violence uh, done. I mean, think, for example, of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Um, when, when Huguenots take uh, the city of Orleans in 1562, one of the first things they do was to burn the city's statue of the Virgin Mary. Um, and so it's it's one of the sort of techniques that people use to stamp their religious identity and authority. We can also see it uh, happening in England. England is has a very different reformation uh, from what happens on the continent, which is very sort of a violent sort of upsurge from, from the ground upwards. The English reformation, by contrast, is very much a sort of top-down uh, reformation. However, uh, there are injunctions, particularly in, Edward VI's reign, the boy king who comes to the throne in 1547 and there's a series of, of royal injunctions um, in 1547 uh, and then an act of parliament in 1550 for the abolition and putting away of diverse books and images and what we see is uh, is a, a spate of iconoclasm and if you have a look at the outside of certain churches uh, like the cathedral in Exeter, you will sometimes see uh the evidence of this still on the face of uh of of saint statues. so it was common to sort of knock heads off or or chip noses uh to sort of slight them um it, We also see this during the uh the english Civil war uh and Bishop Joseph Hall of Norwich described events in sixteen forty three uh when there was a parliamentary ordinance issued against superstition and idolatry. And he records the widespread iconoclasm of people uh, in, that, in that city of Norwich. Uh, and I quote here, "'Lord, what work was here, what clattering of glasses, "'what beating down of walls, what tearing up of monuments, "'what pulling down of seats, what resting out of irons and brass "'from the windows, what defacing of arms?' what demolishing of curious stonework, what tooting and piping upon organ pipes, and what a hideous triumph in the marketplace before all the country when all the mangled organ pipes, vestments, both copes and surplices, together with the leaden cross, which had newly been sawn down from the greenyard pulpit and the service books and singing books that could be carried to the fire in the public marketplace were heaped together. So it's this sort of cacophony of violent rioting that is attacking the very sort of fabric of the church and wanting to change it and erase it and at the heart of it are these statues these idolatrous statues that they want to remove so there we are iconoclasm statues
1: and the reformation sam wonderful well everyone i hope you've enjoyed that do not listen to these stories about statues in the press without thinking about their past now we've given you some more to think about do please check out histories of the unexpected.com uh, you can see all of the books we've written and you can catch up on all of the uh, last episodes and there's also lots of magazine articles for you to get stuck into as well you can follow me on twitter at dr sam willis and
2: you can follow me on twitter at james daybell and you can follow the
1: podcast on at Unexpected Pod. Uh, if you want to help, please do leave us a review on iTunes and also do get in touch. We'd love to hear from every single one of you. That's it for now, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye, guys. Take care. Be safe.
0: Have catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row. Dreaming of something better. Well.